This show is a part of the FM Podcast Network. Visit us at fmpods.com. When I was a kid growing up in Jersey, uh, anybody who was a hoot or really funny or something, uh, we'd call them a riot. Ladies and gents, uh, this guy's a riot in more ways than one. Bob Dylan. Lay down your weary tune, lay down. Lay down the song you strum and rest yourself neath the strength of strings no voice can hope to hum. This is Pod Dylan, the show that celebrates the work of Bob Dylan, one song at a time, proud member of the FM Podcast Network. I'm your host, the freewheeling Rob Kelly, and joining us this week to talk about Lay Down Your Weary Tune, originally recorded for the Times They Are a Changing, is fellow Bobcat Leslie Scott. Hi, Leslie. Hi, Rob. How are you? I'm doing great. Thank you for being on the show. Glad to do it. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. I'm very excited to talk about this song, this kind of really obscure little nugget in the Dylan canon. But of course, I have to ask you the standard uh, opening question, Leslie. How did you become a fan of Bob? Well, um, I'm older than some of your guests, so I go I go way back, but not as far back as I wish I did. I always thought I was born a decade too late. I was kind of one of those kids in the 70s that wanted to be a hippie hmm. uh, in the 60s. And uh, so when I discovered Bob, it was in the 70s. And um, when I was... Uh, you know, a, a freshman, sophomore in college. And uh, then when I went backwards and, and, you know, reviewed all of his and, and listened to all of his albums in the sixties, that, that was just, I thought, man, I wish I'd been, you know, older then, but it's never too late to go backwards. And so that's what I did. I was kind of a kid that grew up listening. You know, I didn't have that pirate radio station. I listened to <laughs> whatever was on AM radio, you know, which was really poppy and, and simple, but. I happen to have had the uh, benefit of two brothers that were seven and eight years older than me. And so they start, one of my brothers, the, the one that was seven years older, started bringing home in the early 70s, you know, things like Pink Floyd and Led Zeppelin. And his favorite at the time was Jethro Tull. So anyway, I started expanding my my musical uh, interests, at least. And then I went to college and that same brother bought me a Jackson Brown album for a graduation gift, Late for the Sky. And uh, to be honest, I think Jackson Brown kind of prepped me for Bob. I, sure. I really, I fell in love with his lyrics and um, started, you know, acquiring a few of his albums. And and then in 1976, we had a guest recently, and this was my story. Um, and I heard him repeat that it was his, and I thought it was interesting. I used to go to the grocery store every week in college and just pick up a TV guide because that's what we did for fun, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it had this picture on the cover of it. And I was like mesmerized and it was Bob Dylan and it was advertising the hard rain TV special of 1976, September of 76, I think. And I just, I was, I was mesmerized. I'd never seen anything like it. He had that, it was the, you know, the lap, the second part of Rolling Thunder. It was where he was wearing that, that material that he had wrapped around his head, you know, mm-hmm. tied in a knot as opposed to the, to the brimmed hat. And there he was on the cover of TV guide and it was going to be aired that week, I think on CBS. And so anyway, I, um, made a point to watch it. And that was it. After that, it was, you know, I was, there were some Rob that actually thought I had become obsessed with Bob Dylan. If you can imagine. (laughs) (laughs) What kind of person would do such a thing? (laughs) Well, I, of course I had a little stipend that I got every, every month from my parents. And if I was really stingy all month long, I'd save up enough to buy an album at the end of the month. And so I started buying up his albums. And I think probably what I bought at first were, you know, like hard rain. And then desire. Um, I remember getting before the flood, and and of course that on those albums were all these um, the live albums were all these other songs from like 
you know, the 60s. And those just really, um, I mean, I like Dylan at every stage of his career. It's pretty fascinating how great to me that he's been most every era. But I fell in love with those 60s albums like most people do. And, um, and I also think it was a time in my life where I was studying in college a lot of English literature. And so I could really see connections between, you know, the lyrics that he wrote and what I was studying. And, and it just, you know, I was, I was just taken by it and I couldn't quit listening and it find new things every time. And, and by the time I was in law school, I began to, during boring classes, I would sit there and just go to the margins of my notebook and just start writing his lyrics out, you know, <laughs> <laughs> for entertaining, entertainment, uh, you know, boring law classes. But, um, you know, it was, it, it's been ever since then. I'd say 76 forward. Um, I've been a diehard fan and, um, it has brought a lot of joy to my life, his music and, um, and music in general has been a, a companion kind of to me. But Bob Dylan's music is in my mind, you know, the top of my list. So a little bit of a roundabout, um, way to tell you, but, and, and then there's another little tidbit I wanted to, to mention, which is because of the 1976 connection with how I became a Bob fan. There's a college, a public university, about four and a half hours south of where I was in college in Mississippi. And after I watched the Hard Rain special and became, you know, such a Dylan fan, I learned that Bob Dylan had performed Rolling Thunder in May of 76 in that college town four and a half hours south of us. And, you know, it was before I really made the connection that was so strong with Dylan. So I didn't even know what had happened at the time, because like I said, it was May and I think the special aired in September. 76. And I later met some people that had gone to it, but I didn't know about it at the time. But what I learned that really was infuriating was that apparently the college I went to, which was the University of Mississippi, had been asked to host his show, his Rolling Thunder. And they turned it down because of exams. <laughs> it was May. Study. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was May of 1976. And I went back and, and just verified that that's the month it was in uh, when he performed four and a half hours south. And that and that's exam time, early May. I think it was May 1st he performed in <laughs> Hattiesburg, Mississippi. And if he had been on the campus of the University of Mississippi, which is where I was, I would have seen him. And I don't have oh. any. I went to a lot of concerts on campus, but I, I you know, we we turned him down. <laughs> it just oh. always has great. I mean, has just really galled me over the years, but I can't help it. It's happened. And. And I did have the good fortune of meet, meeting a young man um, that was walking around in my political science class with a Dylan T-shirt on, a Rolling Thunder T-shirt. And I made a point. I, he used to just be referred to as Bob Dylan boy. But I made a point <laughs> of out, finding out who he was, got his name, uh, found out he'd been to the concert in Hattiesburg, which he well, Hattiesburg is the city south where the concert was actually performed. And um, to make a long story short, this guy's name was also Bob. And we began to date, and a few years later, we married. Right? Wow! Yeah, yeah. But anyway, so um, there's there's that. <laughs> Bob Dylan bringing people together. That's, that's fantastic. right. That's right. Anyway, that's that's the story of my original um, fandom, you might say. That's amazing. I mean, you are certainly the first person to mention. I mean, it's not exactly this, but it's close that that a TV guide cover was the yeah. the, the the divining point of where you became yeah, a fan because it's just it's like wow, like TV guide isn't a thing anymore. So people no. of a certain age don't even know what a TV guide Correct. is. But like just the idea that like how different television is. The idea that Bob Dylan 
would get like two hours on network television to show a concert. Like that's yeah, it's t- nothing it's that would totally happen good. nowadays. Indicts me completely, but I don't even care. It was, it was, I mean, I know everybody says Rolling Thunder 76 was, you know, he was really maybe not as enthusiastic about it by then. And particularly for the show or shows, I forget that were taped for the, the special, but he was tired of it all. But nevertheless, I found it to be, you know, pretty darn, um, spellbound, spellbinding. And I still do when I, and I, you can find it on the internet. You can find mm-hmm. it on YouTube. Mm-hmm. I still enjoy watching some of it, and it, in part, I'm sure, is because it brings back that memory of how I first discovered him and, and how, um, you know, the impact that he, that that show made on me. So you're right, though. TV Guide is nothing, and it was just an every week pickup at the grocery store for me back then. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I, I mean, that's, that's a lot of people don't have that intro to him where right as you're getting into him, you had the opportunity to, to look at him. For like right. two hours straight. Most of us just get the, I mean, you know, you know what he looks like and you've seen videos or bits and sure. pieces here, but, but to, to just start to get into him and then bang, you've got a television special where you're up close watching yep. him do it. That's it, really special. You know, it spoils me to be honest, you know, yeah, because, yeah. because it, we've not, I mean, I, you can see now, I guess with Martin Scorsese's films and the, uh, you know, I, I've gone back and seen the documentaries of, of his life and, and career. But that was uh, a great introduction for me. And yeah. um, anyway, that's how it all began. That's fantastic. <laughs> oh, I mean, look, for that, regarding that special, I am ride or die on that Shelter from the Storm version. I think that is oh, one of the great? best things I've ever heard him do. So well, you he know. performed in a style on that tour that I don't think he's ever really done before or since. It's an interesting mm-hmm. tour to me, even just to listen to it. But when you can see the video, too. Um, I can't get enough of those videos and the and the face paint and all that stuff that he was doing. <laughs> yeah, that's amazing. So, have you yeah. seen him live? Oh, many times, Rob. Uh, I started in in and you might find this interesting. The first time I see, I discovered him in in late '76. Well, he didn't tour again till I just recently discovered it was referred to as the Alimony Tour. The Alimony Tour, yeah. I saw him on the Alimony Tour for the first time in a large venue because, of course, he was doing big places. I guess. To, mm-hmm. to rake in as much as he could. And and he did uh, three street legal songs, um, but he he sang like 29 songs. It was a massive concert, but it was so different from, you know, Hard Rain and stuff mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. He had a he had a different band. He had backup singers. He had saxophones. He's got saxophones. the giant flared pants on. <laughs> oh, the whole the look was different. Everything. The music sounded different. And um, but, you know, I was a huge fan and that was my first time to get to see him live. And so it was a thrill. But the next time I saw him was in 1980, and that was all Christian all the time. He did 17 songs, and he did not a single one. You know, everybody knows this. He he wouldn't sing any of his his old stuff. So um, that was in a smaller venue in Memphis. Both of these were in Memphis because that's very close to where I was in college and law school. So I saw him twice then, and then there's been many repeats. The most recent one was um, I did see him in The Beacon. In 21, it's been a goal of mine to get to see him in the Beacon Theater. And I saw him in 2021 there. And then just by happenstance, he showed up in Asheville, North Carolina, April of 22. So I saw Rough and Rowdy twice. I thought if he's as close, and Asheville is very close to me. So I thought if he's as close to me as Asheville, I don't care if I've seen the tour, I'm going to go see him again. And so I did. But I love, I saw him on the Great American Songbook Tour, which was 16, 2016. I saw him with Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers back in the 80s, I guess. Oh, wow. Yeah. And then I saw him um, 
in, in an obscure place called Tupelo, Mississippi in the 90s, mid-90s, with Kenny Wayne Shepherd opening up for him. Hmm. So it's been, a, it's been a range of, of different shows that I've seen him in. But I'm, I can't keep up with the people that, you know, they, that travel and go on the tour and see every show. I mean, I've never done that. I've, I yeah, had to yeah. work. I yeah. Have to work. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I appreciate that. Yeah. I, when he comes around, I see him kind of once because I'm like, okay, yes. I don't have, I don't have like piles of money laying around to no, see. No, I don't. It shows in a row. So, you know, <laughs> good on anybody that can, that can do it. Do you remember what your reaction was to the 1980 show where you're like, mm-hmm. Very, well, here's the deal. Um, I've evolved over time in terms of how I feel about religion in general. But back then, I was a pretty devout you know, of the Christian faith, pretty devout folk person. And um, so I wasn't insulted that he had converted to Christianity or that he was wanting to sing about it or that he wouldn't include any of his other music, at least at that time. I was um, very, what I, what I didn't love, but it has grated on my nerves much more over the years has been more the, the tenor of it. And the, mm-hmm. um, I found it to be not nuanced at all, you know, very, very of the evangelical, type which is just not my brand of of religion and um but i will say by 80 the show i saw he was not doing what i've since read he he didn't do a bunch of preaching in between mm, songs or anything that's good <laughs> yeah i was gonna say if he'd engaged in some of that that i've read you know quotes from from those uh speeches that he would give um i probably it would probably started um grating on my nerves but he didn't do that. He just, you know, he just went from one. And, and, you know, another thing about it is it's obviously a very important time for him, a, a, an aspect of his life that he finds and found then and still does, I think, to be real important to him. And so for that reason, I'm, you know, I'm not going to be, begrudge him that music and that era. And, you know, I, I, I'm a fan and I, I want to hear what he wants to sing about. And so, um, but I did not really want to hear what he might want to preach about. So I'm glad I didn't. <laughs> The music was enough. Right, exactly. The music, top notch stuff. Top notch. I don't. I don't yeah. need to hear him proselytize. Just give it the, I, the songs are good. The songs are That's good. That's exactly how I felt then and and since, frankly. Yeah, so I'm absolutely. glad I saw it. I'm glad yeah. I saw it. Oh, I would have loved to have seen something like that. Yeah. Jeez. So, all right. Well, let's let's talk about "Lay Down Your Weary Tune." And I said at the beginning of the show, it's kind of an obscure nugget in the Dylan canon. And you know, this song obviously he recorded it for the Times Era Changing. It didn't make the record and it was very, it was meant to be the last song. And then at the very next session for the record, he records Restless Farewell. It was the only song cut at that session. And then this song got bumped for Restless right. Farewell. So it was very specifically like, okay, I want to not, you know, I'm very consciously saying, no, I don't want to end the record with this. I want to end the record with that. So, right. okay. So we know what his intentions were and, and, uh, we'll get into the origins of when he, when he, how he wrote it and how we got recorded and things like that. But, but why did you want to talk about this one? Well, um, it's one that I guess, like most folks, I wasn't around in 63 when he performed it live. I was alive, but I mean, I wasn't where I could have ever heard it when he was, when performed it that one time. He's only performed it once at the, uh, Carnegie, uh, concert, I think 63. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so I didn't know it until Biograph. And then I, I, le- I of course heard it for the first time. Mm-hmm there and um and i liked it from the first time i heard it and i was you know like so much with dylan especially my going backwards in his career to the 60s it's amazing to me that he was about 22 years old and wrote that song i mean Mm -hmm. that's like a lot of his songs that he wrote so young um 
I just, it's, it's, um, he says those songs were like magic or magical. I think he said in that Ed Bradley interview and he doesn't know where they came from. He doesn't talk about this song in particular, but just in general, that, that era of his writing. And, and I, I agree. I mean, it's amazing to me that somebody of, of that, you know, young age could produce stuff that was this, um, poetically, I think sophisticated, but anyway, that was one of the songs that had that appeal. And of course I hadn't heard it before. So it, it had a, an impact. But over the years, I, I've liked it more and more. And I particularly like when they did release the recording, the live at Carnegie recording. I love that version probably better. Hmm. There's something about it live that I like more. And I like, um, I, I thought this and then I saw a comment about it probably on YouTube or somewhere where somebody points out how his guitar gets louder and louder uh, as, as he goes from verse to verse in that live version. And, um, and I, I love that about it. And anyway, I think what is the lasting appeal of the song to me has probably been because I, as you can tell, I grew up in Mississippi. I went to college in Mississippi. Um, Mississippi is a very, uh, I'm thinking of nature now because the song is so um, tied to nature. It's not a place where I enjoyed being out in nature. It was very hot, very humid. Hmm. Um, I didn't enjoy it. I mean, I could try to get out at five 30 in the morning and exercise and the air would still be so heavy. You know, you'd be a struggle. So, um, about year 2000, I, I started visiting other parts of the country and came up to um, the mountains of Western North Carolina. And I just fell in love with everything about it and never would have dreamed that I was an outdoors person, uh, a nature lover or anything like that until this experience of, of being up here. And then I bought a house and I moved here. So I go out all the time in nature. Now I hike, I, I look at mountains, streams, there's nature, you know, animals, everything under the sun up here. And I am, um, I, I did it before I ever semi retired. So I was, I had a very stressful career and I would come up here and feel such a different way. I felt so at ease, so peaceful. I knew this was where I belonged. I had that sense. And so that song to me speaks to that. It speaks to, in my opinion, uh, kind of getting away from the hustle bustle of your daily life, whatever that may be, stressed or just busy. And soaking in uh, whatever nature has to offer and it, and finding some sort of respite or peacefulness or ease or something in that environment. And so that's how it's evolved for me over the years into something that I can really identify with now, you know, not just because I think the poetry is pretty, but because it really speaks to me in a way that I experience life. And um, ultimately, of people of my age, Rob, we, we are start thinking about um, oh, playlists for, you know, end of days, like, you know, memorial services and the like. This one's on my list um, wow. because because I think it can also speak to, you know, the final rest. I mean, it's a it's a such a beautiful song. And I like what Dylan has said. Instead of trying to figure out necessarily what he was writing, it, what he meant by it. How does it experience? How do you experience it? And mm -hmm. everybody experiences, I think things differently and this song is pretty straightforward but i think i've experienced it differently even in my own lifetime um as i've aged with the song so mm. does that answer your question a little bit about why i picked it yeah absolutely um i i first of all i i i envy you that you can find you have found a, a place in the world that you immediately could feel like this it's, is where it, i belong that's great i i don't feel like i've had that exactly yet or well or, i'm lucky Believe me, I know I'm lucky. Yeah. Um, and that's great that you can tie this song into those, 
those feelings. I remember hearing this, you know, off of Biograph. It appears on, yeah. on Biograph, and it's the the version he did for Times Are Changing that's on there. And I had no inkling of what this song was. I'd never heard of it. You know, I, I at that point when I bought Biograph, I was not reading. I had not read a lot of Bob books, so I wasn't steeped in the history. So I remember just playing this and getting to it, and I'm listening, and I'm like, oh my god, what what is this? <laughs> like what? Oh my god, this is. Amazing. And, you know, these songs of his that he records at some past date, which is a ridiculous thing. Of course, he, of course, he recorded a past date. Had he recorded at a future date, but he recorded it in the past. <laughs> but, but the rest of us aren't hearing it until much later. Right. I feel like this is one of those songs that's like, you know, how they say that, like, you know, the light that you see from stars in the sky, that's not, that's light. That's, that was, that's right. From a million years ago, that's when that right. light was shining and we're just getting it now. That's what this song is. Like, it's like, cause this is a song that he, he sits and he writes, he records. It is to me a transcendent performance. Yep. Uh, and like you said, he was only 22 when he wrote yep. this. And yet he had the sort of like eternal wisdom to think these thoughts and then get them down and then perform it. But by the time all of us are getting to hear it, He's long since moved past it. It's 20 years in, in the rearview mirror right. for him. So we're just getting the light by 1985 when Bob Graham comes out. It's finally hitting us. And we're, you know, for the, for the people who this song really connects, you're like, wait, what? Hold on. Yeah. Go back to that. And it's Bob's already 15 albums past that. Well, and, and even Bob had moved past it in a way. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, you know, he didn't put it on the album. I think there were a lot of reasons he, he put Restless Farewell as opposed yeah. to this one. Uh, this probably wasn't a very good fit in the light of the overall album, and particularly with the message that Restless Farewell, I think kind of he intended it to, to say. But I think he had moved past it. And, yeah. um, you know, it's maybe why he didn't. I mean, he didn't put it on there and he didn't hasn't really performed it. No. So um, anyway, I agree with you. I think it is interesting to hear a, a like a hidden gem and a nugget of some sort from, you know, a bygone time in his career that um, we're hearing 20 years later for the first time. It's kind of a thrill. Yeah, it's fun. I mean, for virtually any other artist uh, that might record or write and record this song, this would be like a greatest hit. You know, this would yeah. be on their greatest hits record. It would be side one, track one of the example of this is the genius of this particular artist because they wrote this song. And for Bob, it's, yeah, I wrote it and I tried it and I rejected it for another song and I played it once live, although there is an asterisk to that. We'll talk about that in a second. Okay. But if I... You know, I played it once and then I forgot about it. And you're just like, what? You know, I know. And, and, and even on the biograph liner notes, liner notes. that, that great book that Cameron Crowe wrote with him, he, yep. you know, some of the songs, he's very loquacious. He's got paragraphs and paragraphs of things to talk about. But when he gets to this song, this is the sum total of his comments. He wrote, I wrote that on the West Coast at Joan Baez's house. She had a place outside Big Sur. I had heard a Scottish ballad on an old 78 record that I was trying to really capture the feeling of that was haunting me. I couldn't get it out of my head. There were no lyrics or anything. It was just a melody, had bagpipes and a lot of stuff in it. I wanted lyrics that would feel the same way. I don't remember what the original record was, but this is pretty similar to that. The melody anyway. That's it. That's it. <laughs> That's a yep. very perfunctory bunch of comments for what I feel is really one of his like great lost songs and i agree with you i don't see where this fits into times era changing and but he could have picked it up and put it on something else and he never did i i mean i think it probably could have fit on another side if he had chosen to now by the time yeah of course by that point he had already written 
Mr. Tambourine Man. Yeah. And those these songs are very similar thematically. Right. And they you can see him maybe saying, mm, no, Tambourine Man is more what I want to say. And so I'm going to work yep. on that. And of course, we know that song became what it became. But oh, this, yeah. I, I went back and listened to this again. And I it, it just strikes me as just the sheer scope and the beauty of it. Now, I, you know, I mentioned in, in the liner notes, he says that he wrote it at Joan Baez's house. According to uh, Bob Dylan, uh, Day by Day, the Clinton Hanlon book, he wrote it uh-huh. in September when he was visiting Joan Baez in her house in Carmel, California. Now, Bob mentions outside Big Sur, which is Big Carmel, Sur, California. Yeah. Now, we just, my wife and I just went to Carmel for our honeymoon last year. Oh, wow. And if you can set aside the the note that it probably costs about ten thousand dollars a day to live in Carmel, California. Right. I can understand why that living in that area might help you connect with the idea of the beauty of nature because I mean it's stunning, isn't it? Oh man. <laughs> I mean, well that's like, what I thought. Oof. When I read the the you know, reread the liner notes uh and saw the reference to Big Sur and I knew Joan had the house out in the area of Carmel, like you say, I thought Okay, I can see what inspired this clearly because I don't associate him, you know, in general with writing nature poems and stuff like He's that. He's not John you know? Denver, you know. <laughs> Correct, right? And uh, and so I have to assume that you're right that that being where he was, that setting, I mean, it ha- it has to inspire. I mean, it does me anytime I've been out to that part of the West Coast. So I know exactly what you're what you're talking about. I mean, it's it. If, if if you can afford to live out there, yeah, I would right. imagine that place would be incredibly conducive to being creative and feeling very uh, joyful at the just the the you know the the feeling of nature around you, being part of nature, right? And, and I feel like that's palpable in this song. And you know, lyrically, I mean, I, I quoted the first first verse, and then the song goes on. He says, "Struck by the sounds before the sun." I knew the night had gone, the morning breeze like a bugle blew against the drums of dawn. Lay down your weary tune, re-rest yourself the strength of strength. And then he continues, the ocean wild like an organ played, the seaweeds wove its strands, the crashing waves like cymbals clashed against the rocks and the sands. I mean, I love the constant comparison of something natural and eternal with something man-made. You've got the ocean and the organ, the seaweed and the strand, the the waves and the symbols. I, this right. idea of there are things greater than us that right. will be that have been here before us, will be here after us, and I can, as a musician, I can can try and convey that feeling I'm having to you, and the idea that it's we all are connected to this eternal thing through music connects us into the larger natural world. And again, like you were saying, being at 22, 22. I know. That's and the main, ha- being that in touch with these things. It's amazing. I, I agree completely. Um, it's, it's pretty phenomenal to me. I don't know of anybody, you know, in, at least in modern times that has um, been able to write like that at such a young age. And, and he's continued to, in my, you know, he's continued to, to, to achieve those kinds of, of big uh, successful poetic kind of lyrics over the lifetime, his lifetime. But um, anyway, I, I think that, you know, as you read each of the verses, I, like you, I think that the, you know, the fact that he compares, um, uh, you know, things in nature and the choice of words that he makes is what's so interesting to me. You know, a breeze to a bugle, uh, drums to dawn, that kind of stuff is, mm-hmm. is pretty um, spectacular and not 
I found something that I, I need to attribute if I'm going to reference it because um, some guy named Levi Asher, who apparently started something called Literary Kicks, which was one of the early and is longest continuing running kind of literary um, websites. And um, he, he said a lesser lyricist would have given us rain for drums, a trumpet for dawn, leave it to Dylan to dare dawn as drums, hmm. see, seaweed as an organ. Rain as a trumpet, tree as a banjo, and a river as a harp. I mean, that's speaking to what I'm saying. The choice of words that he used, I find fascinating. You know, I try to think of, think to myself, you know, would I have ever thought of an ocean as an organ? Reminding me, you know, even if I was trying to link things, um, waves like symbols. It's just, it's, it's to me, it's just incredible how he came up with those types of, you know, descriptives. And uh, every time I hear it, I still enjoy the trying to imagine those things, you know, the analogies. Yeah, the the language of it feels, and again, this is what he's going for, but the language yeah. of it feels eternal. It feels like ha- these words clearly must have been put together in this order before 1963, right? This, yeah, this really. Can't, this, yeah. You know, but no, you know, <laughs> no, they they were never put in this order before until 19, until that time. And it just, it feels like if you had said, this song hails from, I mean, he said that he took it from a, a Scottish ballad, but I yeah. mean, at least the melody. But if you had said, oh, this song is from 1750 something and it was written by a pirate. Uh, and you, I'd be like, yeah, sure. That, that sounds, that sounds plausible. I, you know, I like, agree. And, um, somebody, I, somebody, you know, that I was reading about trying to kind of get other viewpoints about the song said that it, it reminds them of Blake and, and, you know, Blake is, I think, an influence, probably, but he his line that was cited in what I read is this poem, to see a world and a grain of sand and a heaven and a wildflower. I think Bob's is, I don't know if this is heresy, but I, I think his is better. <laughs> <laughs> um, I just think, though, that it, I see the influence, but I, I think I think Bob's choice of words are just, they're unusual, though, and, and in, a, in a really good way. And... Um, I don't know. I just love, I love his language. I still do, you know, rough and rowdy ways. The, the choice of language is just um, unique to, in terms of who I've ever heard or read. So this song, it, you know, it, it's, it starts out with, you know, the lay down your weary tune and you can obviously tell he's talking about getting rest or respite or something, but at first you don't know exactly what, what he's suggesting or how you do it. But then as soon as the next the real verse starts, you start going into all the nature references. And um, I think, I think they're just, um, I've got two verses that are kind of my favorites and you read one of them, which is the, um, no, I don't think you've gotten to my two favorites yet. Okay. I'll wait till you do. <laughs> are you going to read all the verses? No, go, go ahead. You t- which ones are your favorites? Well, I, I stood unwound beneath the skies, the clouds unbound by laws, the crying rain, like a trumpet sang and asked for no applause. And I, I think, you know, I'm trying to think then, is he talking about himself and music, although I'm trying very hard not to um, personalize it to him. But the fact that he's saying that there are things superior in nature to what's in human life, you know, man-made things, the the career in music where, you know, you basically are going always for applause. It may be that he was tired a little bit and wanted to rest and in nature, you know, these things are just beautiful in and of themselves and they don't need any applause. That's kind of what I read into that verse. And then the other favorite of mine is I love the way he says the word. I say mirror. He says mirror. 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> I gazed down in the river's mirror and watched its winding strum. The water smooth ran like a hymn and like a harp did hum. Some people think that's that's very religious in tone, um, the word hymn and harp. But I, I, I just love the I just love the language. And um, I, I think you can obviously love nature without it being necessarily religious. But mm-hmm. um, sure, of course. anyway, I, those are my two favorite verses. And I think they're all, though, you know, really beautiful images. Yeah. Uh, look, if you want to trade heresies, uh, I'll tell you, <laughs> I, I, I kind of secretly like this one more than Mr. Tambourine Man. Uh, well, and, they're they're and thematically similar. I understand why Mr. Tambourine Man was the bigger hit. Because yeah. I think it's got something a little easier to hook into. It's got the figure. It's got the Mr. Tambourine Man character that you're following from verse to verse to verse. But yeah. there's, I, and I love that song. Don't get me wrong. It's a oh, masterpiece. No, it's one of his classics, yada, yada, yada. But this, every time I listen to this one, it is just so stirring. And the fact that it remains to me mysterious that yeah. you, you do, you know, despite the fact we're sitting here talking about it and we're trying to kind of unpack it a little, it resists strict definitions it it just doesn't it doesn't give you that idea of like this is what it is it's more a feeling it's more just oh this is the fit and his performance of it and it's funny you mentioned that you liked the live one a little more than the studio one i actually prefer the studio one i feel like and i i hear what you're talking about you're saying that the guitar is getting kind of louder as the song goes on that's i that i don't prefer that i actually like the album take where i feel like his vocal is what is driving this particular train and he stays, it stays so firm through the whole thing. And apparently he did it in one take. There's no, there's no alternate takes, which is just again, mind blowing. Um, But there's just something about it that is so, it's just like sort of this ineffable feeling of like, yeah, I'm connecting to something greater than me. And this guy is able to put it down in words in a way that gestures towards what I'm feeling, but doesn't, you know, he doesn't like underline it, you know, I mean, no. he's an overdoing yeah. it. It's just like, right. yeah, that's yeah. And, and something else about this song is that this song is, I've talked about other Dylan songs that are really short and were really long. And this one is, this one is short. It's less than four minutes, but it feels bigger than that. It feels like the, the ideas yeah. are so huge. And I don't mean that it, that it feels long, like it wears out its welcome, but it's just, it's such a big song and it's, it's engaging with such huge ideas that I'm like, wow, that's like 358. Like, that's it. Like, yeah, right. like wow. He packed all that into four minutes. That's he did. Feel. He could. And I'm like you, I, I of course had heard Tambourine Man well before I had heard this song. And sure. it, it, it was one of my first, um, just, you know, I was just blown away by it of Dylan's songs. And I, I'm sure it, the Tambourine Man lyrics were among those that I would, uh, kind of drift away from from lectures in law school and, and start writing the lyrics down. That that was that was one of the songs I was over there, you know, writing them out just for fun. Um, <laughs> and um, but this one, the, the comparison is clear. I mean, some people think they're both about a muse, you know, his muse. Yep. Um, but I, I I may agree with you. It's it's kind of hard to say because of Tambourine Man's place in my in my life. Really, it's just been such a strong song for me all these years but i agree that there's this one is at least for me equally as powerful and maybe more so but it just hasn't been so, you know we haven't heard it, it it's yeah. not as uh, familiar to us as the tambourine man that we've heard over and over sure somewhere i read rob that that old scottish um, ballad that he says he took the melody from 
may have been the water is wide. Oh. And huh. if you, you listen to the water is wide melody, I, I can kind of see that. There's another one that I had never heard of that's mentioned in some of the things I've read. Um, but the water is wide is one of the songs I had, I had thought about suggesting to you. I truly love that version on fragments. Oh, so, unreal. I know. I know. Anyway, <laughs> but if you listen to the melodies of the two, I can see the possibility that that's, I mean, Bob has not said, um, what the old Scottish uh, ballad was, but, but this, that's was mentioned and, and I can kind of see it. And I love that. I love his version of Water is Wide so much that I was happy to make the leap uh, from there to this. But anyway, I I think for someone to be um, as young and and, you know, Dylan, to me, he'll always be fat. People write about this forever is how did somebody that came, although everybody says, well, you need to go to Hibbing and see that that high school he went to and how incredible, uh, you know, education was there because they had that that um, iron ore kind of money, you know, Mm -hmm. and they built this fancy school and apparently had, you know, he had a great English teacher, but he didn't, he didn't have a lot of formal education beyond that. And to turn up some of the stuff, turn out some of the stuff he did. Well, it's just inherent. It's genius, you know, that's a gift. Mm -hmm. And this song at such a young age, that's something I think about every time I hear it. I just am like, wow. Wow. Yeah. Um, as you um, mentioned, there was only the one performance of it, yeah, uh, October twenty sixth, and it was at Carnegie Hall, and that that whole concert was recorded for a potential live album that Columbia was going to put out, and they even they even made a cover for it, and you can find yes. the cover on YouTube as of and it. It's always a little surreal to see kind of like a finished album cover for an album that never came it out. Didn't happen. It feels like some parallel world where that that's a record that exists, like oh, they you know because it's got the Columbia like logo on it and everything. But again. Supposedly, according to the Bob Dylan Day by Day book, he did record this live one other time. Oh, in October 9th, he was the surprise guest at a Joan Baez concert where he sang this song. Oh, wow. I have never heard that. I've never I looked on YouTube. I've never come come across a bootleg, but apparently he recorded it. uh, He he performed it at this concert. Now, uh, according to the, the listing here, it says it was not. Uh, the audience was not super thrilled because it seemed like a very long song. Apparently <laughs> that same night after that concert, he went and hung out with Henry Miller. You imagine what that <laughs> evening must have been like. I, I can um, only imagine. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, you want to talk about Tropic of Cancer or what do you, what do, you, what do, you do, Henry? Right. Um, but, but <laughs> now we, you know, we talked a little bit earlier about Mr. Tambourine Man. Of course, Tambourine Man got a huge boost by being recorded by the birds and it was one of right. their big hits and it became one of the most famous Bob Dylan songs, even though a lot of people don't even know it's his. This right. song, this is a song that by dint of the fact that Bob has performed it so few times, namely basically once, there are more covers of it than there mm-hmm. are Dylan versions of it because this That's thing right. is covered half a dozen times at least. And the, the, the most notable, first of all, there's two, there's one Billy Bragg does it yes. on the Chimes of Freedom. Amnesty International record, and that's a right. perfect song for him, and he does a really beautiful version of it. But the one that kind of got this song inserted into the bloodstream of other musician is there was a 1973 record by a group called Colson, Dean, McGinnis, and Flint, and the <laughs> the album is called. It sounds like a law firm. The album yeah. is called Lo and behold, and it is all Bob Dylan covers, except it's obscure Bob Dylan covers. Wow. It's not what like a, a Rolling Stone. 
it's it's like they cover Lo and Behold, they cover Lay Down Your Weary Tune. Um, I'm blanking with some of the odds and ends. Like it's it's obscure. Yeah. And I was looking on YouTube videos about it, and they were saying that this re- that was a record that other musicians heard and were like, "This is a Bob Dylan song. I've never heard this one." And so that's how this song got to become a favorite by a lot of other musicians simply because it was finally put on a record that people yeah. could buy and hear. Well, and Thanks that would have been, guys. I'm assuming that would, what was the year of that? That was well before the Billy Bragg. Yeah. Okay. Oh yeah. 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 Billy Bragg's was, um, is popular because, you know, that whole album is kind of an interesting, um, uh, I, I love to hear how the people, I'm not a big, I don't love Bob Dylan covers generally. I, I love to hear him sing his own lyrics better mm-hmm. than I do anybody else. But, I do think uh, there's some covers that I that are that are worthwhile, and I think that whole album is is got a lot of good ones. And Billy yeah. Bragg's is, is one. I have not heard the one you're talking about. I'm gonna have to look that up. That's it's so funny. Like just yeah, people are like, "What? Like, what is this thing?" Well, and, and so and you yeah. you can pick you like you said earlier. You can pick Bob Dylan obscure tunes, and they'll be they'd be other people's greatest hits. Yep. But um, so there's a whole album of them. I bet there that I need to I need to find and explore. I did read somewhere, going back to him singing this with Joan Baez, that when he first wrote it, he showed it to her and wanted her to sing it with him. And she wanted to wait a little while till she got more comfortable with it or something like hmm. that. Um, but so apparently she, from what you've read and know, she did do uh, a live performance with him on it. And I haven't heard that. So that's interesting. But, you know, him doing it at the Carnegie Hall thing, and and I don't know why I like the buildup, the buildup of the guitar. I just I, I guess it's sort of getting to parts of the song, the verses that I that I particularly love. And he mm. gets more powerful uh, as he as he moves along. And and for me, at least the buildup of the guitar, um, the vocal goes along with it. But I understand. And, and that's what's great about Dylan is everybody's got their own favorites and their own, um, you know, ways of hearing him. And, and I think that's that's part of the fun of talking about him so absolutely uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> i i mean i i honestly feel like this belongs on any i think if you asked any dylan fan like what are the five great unreleased songs i don't think this song would make most people's list you'd probably no. you know, like blindly mctell right. and abandoned love or, or whatever sure. but uh, up to me you know things like that right I, I i would put this on like a 10 list if somebody I said give me 10 i think it's yeah. that good I do too. I put it on a 10 list. Every time I sit around and try to think about the uh, ones that didn't make the album, the list grows. But, <laughs> <laughs> but I think this one would certainly be on a, a, a 10 list. And, um, you know, I, it would be fun if he ever did it again, uh, live, but I'm not, I'm not waiting on that. I'm no, not yeah. holding my breath. <laughs> um, wouldn't it be weird to go to a concert one night and all of a sudden out he comes with <laughs> lay down your weary tune. Um, you know, yeah, but he's just, as, he's just as likely to as not, isn't he? Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, I mean, somebody <laughs> in the band, he's got a new drummer. Maybe some minute that guy's like, Hey man, I love this one. Can you play? Let's do, let's, it. Let's, let's do this. Let's, you know, just do this as an alternate one night. Yeah. I just, it's, it's, I think we, you know, I was making a joke earlier about like saying he's not John Denver or whatever. And I didn't mean to right. knock John Denver. No, no. But like, you know, the, the, sometimes songs that are, 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 are tributes to nature can be corny. That's and right. This this song escapes that. I think that's part of the reason it works so well is that it it remains mysterious and and the the, the use of the language is so kind of reserved in its way that it it keeps it from being schmaltzy in a way. I totally agree. You know, and that's yeah. what makes it retain why it retains its power. And again, every time I listen to it, I was like, oh, God, this song is 
it's just so terrific. Like, I'm just picturing him sitting in Carmel, California in the sun setting and just strumming this yes. out. Like, Oh, wow. You know, <laughs> well, <laughs> oh, and I, God. and I can't remember where I first heard, let me die in my footsteps, but it's another one that he wrote. Oh, another really young. One, yeah. That's so grown up in, in terms of the sentiment. And, um, I, I, I've listened to the, but they, and I know there's no real reason, but they kind of remind me of each other. I think I'm just amazed by the, the wisdom in both of them and how young he was when he wrote them that, um, that probably ties them in my mind. But there are just so, um, many that he wrote at such a young age. And, and that's not to say that he isn't still writing great songs, but to go back to the Bradley interview, you know, when he said to him, where did those songs come from? Those <laughs> early songs. And he said, I don't know, you know, it was like magic. And, but then, and then, it, then, I mean, probably the most poignant part of that interview is when Bradley says to them, or can you write those songs anymore anyway? And he says, no, I can't, mm-hmm. I can't write them anymore. And Ed Bradley's like, what? And mm-hmm. he said, no, I can't write them anymore. And he said, I can do other things. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but I can't do that. And, um, there is a change in, in his writing. I don't know if it was after, I guess it was after the, the accident, the motorcycle thing. And he, you know, starts a different type of life and everything. There is a change in his style, but what remains is, is just, uh, great language. And, and I think great music, you know, I, he doesn't get a, enough credit for his melodies and yeah, he borrowed some old, but you know, all music comes from somewhere and, and yeah. everybody's borrowed uh, plenty over the years of the melodies and things, but, um, his, lyrics and the the fascination that they hold for me is never gone away they're just different they're not surrealistic or you know they're they're not they're not they're not like those 60s uh lyrics but they're they're just as fine in in a different way and i know have i heard am i correct that you like a lot of the we don't i don't know what to call it anymore i was going to say late era boss (laughs) i don't even know what to call it because he's still going strong to me. And, and what we're talking about is stuff that started with time out of mind and whatnot, but I'm just as big a fan of that and everything after that, as I am everything before. But mm-hmm. I think for me, it's probably when you discover him and I discovered Dylan in 75 and immediately went backwards to the sixties. And that's why it holds such a, you know, it's got such a hold on me. But mm-hmm. um, anyway, this song is, is, I could have I could have chosen a lot of different songs, and I certainly have some that I absolutely adore. Probably "Visions of Johanna" is one of my favorite lyrics of his ever. But I think this is a song that what I love about "Lay Down Your Weary Tune" is kind of what I mentioned at the outset, which is it's it's kind of um, evolved with me over time. I, I know when I first heard it, I didn't have a big connection with nature myself. You know, when Biograph came out. But then I started developing my own connections with nature as I traveled. And then I eventually moved to a part of the place, part of the country where I'm surrounded by natural beauty and enjoy getting out. it. so the song just, you know, kind of grew with me. And that's that's that makes it particularly special, I think. Yeah, it's great when his some of his songs, I love them for the feelings they inspired in me the first time I heard them. And then other ones I didn't get. And now I get them because I'm older. I'm 25 years old. And when I heard them from that, and it's great. They, they just, they evolve with you, which is uh, remarkable for it's a, something it's a that's mark three of minutes or four minutes, you know, yeah. <laughs> four minutes on. It's a, it's a mark of a great song. I think that they hold their, they don't just hold their special place, but they, they kind of, um, they're enhanced and mm-hmm. they change, uh, over decades. And that's, you know, I can't say that about many musicians 
songs, lyrically or otherwise. So, and, and what I love about him is that, you know, like you said, the timelessness of this song, um, it, it could have been written hundreds of years ago. It could have been written, you know, today. And, and yet, you know, and I'm not putting down other musicians of his era, but artists of his era have not, I don't think matured in the same way that he has and, and write about uh, that maturing and changes in his life and changes in the world, you know, and again, not mean to put anybody down, but you know, when Mick is still singing, I can't get no satisfaction. That's fine. It's what he does, but Dylan's not up there singing that. I mean, I don't even know if he ever wrote songs that were that tied to an era, but maybe some of his early stuff, some of the, as he would call finger pointing or um, (laughs) protest, whatever he would, those were era, but you know what? That those have come back around. You can say sadly. I, I would say sadly. A lot of those songs have turned out to be timeless. Mm-hmm. Um, they have come back around. I just love how he has he has shown us how a, a rock musician of the '60s can mature and remain just as relevant. You know, in his in his '80s, 60 years later. You know, amazing. And that's 60 it's years. Unique. Think about that. 60 years. I know. And of course it's aging me as I was thinking about trying to talk to you today about when I first became a fan, et cetera, et cetera. It really drove home <laughs> the point of how long, not only how long has Dylan been around and how long have I been around, <laughs> <So>. <laughs> but you know, consider the alternative. Uh, I'm glad to be here and I, exactly. And I'm glad, yeah. Yeah. I'm glad he's here. So absolutely. Um, but I, I look forward to trying to catch him again in concert. And um, one of the thrills for me now and probably started back some time ago is we don't any of us know how long we'll be here, but he is 82 in May, isn't he? Mm-hmm. And um, one of the thrills is to be able to be in the same room with him while he's doing what he does so well and being able to stand up at the end, you know, for a few, few seconds, he's still in the room and get, give him a standing of, you know, ovation and applaud and just say, that's one, that's my way of saying thank you, not just for the show I just saw, but for, you know, his lifetime of giving us the gift of his art. And it's a special moment for me. It's special to be at a concert of his, but particularly to be, to be there at the end. And that's what I'm thinking at the end is when I stand up and applaud, I'm thinking it's my, my little, little way of saying what a gift he has been to me. All my life, seemed like not all, but you know, starting pretty young. Let me put it that mm-hmm. way. So, um, I hope to see him again. We'll see. Yeah, me too. Me too. I can't wait till he swings around again. So, well, that is a great place to leave it. Thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate. It. You know that before we wrap up, I have to ask you uh, our exit question, which is uh, since you're new to the show, I'll ask you the one I've been asking for a while, which is if there's any Bob recording session that you could sit in on, just be a fly on the wall for. What would it be? Well, Rob, I knew you were going to ask this and I've given it a lot of thought. And, you know, that's a hard question for anybody that's that's been a fan of his through many years. But one of the things I've enjoyed in the last few years is um, not only has the and I read a lot of Dylan books, not only have I enjoyed the move from kind of fandom type uh, books to kind of scholarly uh, analysis of his, but also the ones that will focus on a single album, um, the making of a particular album and recording. and and so the one I read about Blonde on Blonde is, and, and, I, and I, if I was forced, if you, if you, you know, tied me down and made me say what is my favorite Dylan album, it's, it's probably Blonde on Blonde. 
And so the recording session for that, from everything I read, you know, he would come in late. He would still be writing in the studio. The musicians who were union and getting paid were just astounded to be out there playing ping pong while he wrote <laughs> till the middle of the night. You know, I mean, it, it had to be a fascinating thing. And then the music that came out of that, um, like I said, it forced, I would say it is my favorite and certainly got some of my all time favorite songs. So Visions of Johanna is one of my all time favorites. I think Blonde on Blonde would probably be the one to watch him sit in there and work on lyrics and then record them almost on the spot and then be what they were. That thin, wild Mercury sound. I can't help it. I, I, I think he describes it beautifully as to what he was trying to achieve there and to have been a fly on the wall and watch it. Um, would have been really fascinating. That's a great answer. No problem. Well, so. it's it's the best one I can come up with, but there's a lot to choose from. Like that, you know, no easy answer. The beauty of it, there's no wrong answer. There's whatever right. you want, no wrong answer. So, well, Leslie, thank you so much for doing this. Uh, I really appreciate it. And this was just, I love the song. And so I'm really happy that we finally got to discuss it on the show. Um, so why don't you tell people where they can find you out on the internet? Well, um, I think on, on uh, I'm at, at lscott57. That's pretty much it on um, Instagram and Twitter. And that's that's where I am. I'm not on Facebook, but I am on Instagram and Twitter. All right. Fair enough. So, of course, everybody, uh, you can find all the back episodes of the show over on our new site, which is fmpods.com. As I mentioned, we're now part of the FM Podcast Network, and there's lots of exciting new stuff to be coming over there in terms of this show and other great shows. So check it out. All the other uh, great Dylan content over at fmpods.com. I just subscribed, Rob. Oh, thank you. So yeah. <laughs> I'm excited. So I'm excited. It sounds great. I'm, I'm very, we, this has been, uh, in the works for a while and, okay. uh, I'm glad it's finally, finally here. And yeah, there's going to be lots of exciting things we're going to get to do over there. And uh, I'm really looking forward to doing it. So again, thank you so much. I really, really appreciate that. That's awesome. Uh, and of course, uh, you can, uh, find the show over on Twitter at pod underscore Dylan. So, uh, that's going to do it. Thanks everybody for listening and we will see you later. Bye. And Dylan, as I've said before, is kind of notorious for writing great songs and then putting them on the shelf. And he wrote a great song in 1963 called Lay Down Your Weary Tune. A group in 1971 did an album of obscure Bob Dylan songs. It was produced by Manfred Mann, who'd been famous for covering Dylan songs in the 60s. That was where I first heard Lay Down Your Weary Tune, and I loved the song. In fact, I was a music writer at the time, and I'd written a review of the album, raving about the album and raving about that song. So I'm discussing this with Billy Bragg, and it turns out that he bought that album, he'd read the review, and had gone out and bought the single from the album, first of all, and that, that song, Lay Down Your Weary Tune. I thought, well, this is a moment of synchronicity. 